Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts on the channel. And today I'm talking to Alicia Pulianisi about her wonderful new book, Common Phantoms, An American History of Psychic Science, which is just out from Stanford University Press. Alicia, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Um, I wondered if you could begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, So I am a historian of science and medicine uh, and also at this point kind of an all-purpose freelancer um, focused on public-facing work. So I do uh, web content and exhibits in addition to teaching uh, as an adjunct. And so I did my PhD in the history of medicine at Johns Hopkins, um, which was a really great and supportive department where I was very much free to follow my instincts. And uh, that's kind of how I wound up (laughs) going from, you know, what I initially proposed in my application to uh, studying psychical research and parapsychology. So what did you initially propose in your application? What did you think you were going to write about when you you applied to graduate school? I think, well, initially I was interested in 19th century print culture um, and health and wellness. And so it's not, it it all does make sense to me ultimately, um, because what got me into this book project was indeed, um, you know, journals and magazines uh, that were circulating knowledge about psychical research and supernormal experiences. And so I think there is a there is a connection there. So starting with with um, things you were reading print culture, and then you, um, you stumbled upon this really interesting archive. So I, I wondered if you could sort of tell us tell us about that. How did some of your your primary and secondary um, source reading lead you to really like the the kind of archival treasure trove that your the book is based on. Yeah, it was really luck in the kind of early days of the mass digitization of uh, of all this 19th century material. Um, I was kind of combing through digitized journals, uh, really mostly looking for images that were of interest to me. And so that's where I first saw these very charismatic illustrations Um, these telepathic drawings that were published in the American uh, Society for Psychical Research's proceedings. And so it was really uh, from those images. And then when I started reading their publications and connecting them to the state of psychology and the mind sciences uh, and religion and spiritualism at that time, that I really started Uh, honing in on it and seeking out the secondary literature and building a project around it. Okay. So, so what is this? Tell us about the society. Who, who were they? What were they researching? Um, And and how, how did you come upon all of their records? Give us a little bit of background. Yeah. So I, was kind of intrigued by the society's connection with these kind of early luminaries in psychology, namely William James, G. Stanley Hall, uh, a lot of a lot of big names sort of passing in and out of connection with the society, uh, many of them becoming kind of skeptical or disillusioned uh, over the course of their experiences. Um, and I found that the society still exists today. It has a headquarters in New York City. And eventually I worked my way in there uh, and got to check out their archives, which are full of letters from the public, just from random people around the country. Uh, these letters had often been solicited by newspaper advertisements. Um, even apparently solicitations were uh, tucked into the pages of James's psychology textbook. And so people learned about the American Society for Psychical Research and that they were seeking reports of experiences 
things like telepathy or clairvoyance, uh, mediumship, channeling uh, the dead, and you know any other kind of sort of abnormal or supernormal mental experience. Do we know how they got into William James's psychology textbooks? Did he put them there? He was like, while you're you know reading about the principles of psychology, also. If you if you happen to have a clairvoyant experience, contact these people. I mean, do you have do we have any idea? I hadn't, you know, I didn't have time to track down how that came about. It was really just one letter in the archive that was from a high school student who said, you know, dear Dr. James, I found this uh, request for contributions in my text in, in my version of your textbook, and I'm writing to you with this story, and I. Yeah, I, I didn't actually figure out how it got into her hands by way of the book. Huh. And I will say, just it, it's a wonderful book. And whenever any of these luminary figures is mentioned in connection with a psychical soci- science, um, I, I, it it makes you stop when you're reading and think like, oh, these people were serious. You know, like, like this, this was, this was, um, well, I don't, we'll talk more about how, just how fringe the science was and, and how um, similar to other, other forms of scientific inquiry at the time. Um, before I get into that, can you tell us a little bit about um, the structure of the book, which is really kind of, it's, you call it centrifugal. I think it's, it's kind of creative, I think. Well, yeah, that was just my way of saying that it's it's thematic rather than chronological. Um, oh. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's it. These are themes or categories that emerged um, out of my engagement with the archive, because there's there are already a lot of books on this topic, um, both on the history of the ASPR, on the history of psychical research, um, and on the relationship between spiritualism and science. So I wanted to approach it based on the concerns and the preoccupations of the society and its correspondence. And, you know, these were not always consistent or cohesive. Uh, So the nature of their engagement was these sporadic bursts of curiosity, like something happens and they really want answers. But then they kind of you know, fall off in their interest over time, these periods of infatuation and neglect, and this really intense intimacy that forms during those periods, and then a kind of mistrust that emerges when um, the society's leaders express doubt or keep asking questions, and then people get kind of turned off. Um, So that, that pattern of engagement kind of made me think that I should structure the book in this kind of different way. Um, and so as I sort of move across each of these themes, you know, the first chapter on weather, on, on dreams, on telepathy, um, intimacy and madness, kind of the underlying argument of the book repeats across these different contexts. Um, that in each of these cases, the participants were drawn drawn in by these experiences of permeability and communion, but also repelled by the demands of scientific observation and reporting as imposed by the society, um, and also repelled by the lack of conclusive results. Um, or they, you know, perhaps walked away because they felt they didn't need a conclusion or they didn't need the sanction of science. So, um, so it's not chronological then are all of these different sort of um, engagements with, with different types of question questions and research methodologies going on around the same time. Yeah. So the way that the society itself was structured is that it had these different departments, which were, you know, each in theory conducting their own research, um, cultivating their own set of contributors. Um, Of course, it it wasn't always highly functional over the course of its 19th and early 20th century existence. Again, a lot of sort of sporadic interest. Um, 
And ultimately, you know, because it was an amateur society at a time when the rest of the sciences and psychology were professionalizing within the academy, um, the participants really didn't have time uh, to contribute this really hard work of knowledge production that it would require to produce conclusive scientific evidence. So what is what time period are we talking about here? And and who are some of these? Um, I, because they're really the, the, the period you're talking ab- about, this is the period when psychology is or the sci sciences are just really starting to emerge as fields of inquiry and as disciplines and to sort out what types of questions they can ask and answer and what types of questions are out of bounds. Um, so so what are the years we're talking about and who are some of the key figures that we would meet um, interacting with this with the society in those years? So the founding of the society in the U.S. is um, 1885, and the book starts, you know, the material in the book, you know, starts early, much earlier than that. I mean, going as going back to, it, I sort of, you have to explain modern American spiritualism in this process because I think that's a big uh, impetus for later psychical investigation, just that spiritualism has kind of, established these ideas um, about the about communication with with other worlds um, and about finding hard evidence of the existence of the soul oh can, can um, you just define spiritualism for our listeners really quickly if, if, if possible <laughs> yeah so I guess I would it, summarize it as the use of mediumship um, to communicate with the dead uh, in the afterlife. And, um, this entire, this cosmological idea, um, that there's a, um, there is an afterlife where we can still communicate with people, uh, and the sort of integrity of the soul after death. Uh, and so that, that search for the soul and spiritualism also, uh, appropriates a lot of scientific, uh, ideas and methods, uh, or claims to, um, you know, claims to be evidence-based and, you know, provable, uh, and it's all about firsthand witnessing of the phenomena. So that kind of establishes a framework of witnessing and testing that I think is very influential in these later developments. And so, yeah, so in 1885, uh, we get and after, you know, after interest in spiritualism has risen and fallen over the course of many decades, um, in 1885, we get um, the founding of this American Society for Psychical Research, which was modeled on a British society. Um, and so in that foundational moment, uh, William James is there. Um, and so he's playing this very important legitimating role for psychical research. And even though after he helps to found the society, he rarely had time to participate in its daily operations um, in a very regular way. He's kind of acting as a public philosopher, as a representative of this new science of psychology. uh, And he's advocating for this broader purview for psychology, uh, that it needs to remain connected to these spiritual questions, uh, to these questions of subjectivity and the soul. And, you know, he's ultimately kind of fighting a losing battle as the field becomes more experimental, um, laboratory-based, and ultimately the rise of behaviorism. So, and of course, James's personal interest in spiritualism is well-documented. He, throughout his life, visited mediums and, you know, had critical, like had very critical views of them, but at the same time was seeking as many psychical researchers were, was seeking this kind of residuum of, you know, authentic, uh, authentic communication from the dead. And I guess there are a lot of other significant figures um, who are much less well known than James. Um, So, you know, in the book, 
uh, we it talks a lot about Richard Hodz, Hodgson, who was a respected British psychical investigator, who was sent to the U.S. to keep the American society afloat. Um, and he dealt with the bulk of correspondence during that early period, um, as well as later ASPR leaders. But uh, for me, what's most interesting is these participants from around the United States who don't really have much of a historical footprint. Um, and their letters to the ASPR are this window into their concerns and beliefs and attitudes towards science. Yeah, so there are a lot of different sort of voices that are getting mediated through the ASP. Um, what am I? What am I? Society for psych for, for psychical research. Yes. Um, so uh, I can you. One one really interesting thing that choice that you made was to include these kind of autobiographical interludes between the chapters, which I've I've you know I was like you know felt like this is something anthropologists do all the time I know but um, I haven't seen it in a history of medicine book quite you know quite like this before I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about why. Why did you have these kind of, why did you include these kind of autobiographical archival encounters between the different thematic chapters? Um, you're right. I guess it's probably a trick that I picked up from anthropology. Um, but I, I think it's, it's not a trick. It's, I think it's great. Why don't we do this more in history? Anyway, please continue. Well, yeah. And I think the argument for doing it is that this archive was completely all consuming. Um, and it kind of the, and I think this is common to a lot of historians as we encounter different archives, that there's a certain loss of the self as you become immersed in other people's lives and realities. And I, I think that that is a psychologically interesting experience. And it's because this material is all about self loss of self and, you know, the mediation of reality and unreality, I felt like it was appropriate to be transparent about my ways of navigating that, um, kind of the impact that this research had on me and the way that I, you know, I'm acting as a medium for the material, which is to say that, you know, I'm, I'm not objective. It really works. It's really cool. Right, listeners, you should check it out. Um, right, let's let's kind of di start digging into um, some of the the um, substance of of each of these chapters. Um, now that we talked a little bit about the structure and things like that, um, in what ways did psychical researchers view their work as similar to other types of observational research at the time? Like I think I think you mentioned meteorology as being um, a type of branch of a research that it was sort of likened to. Definitely. Uh, that was one of the most striking things that I immediately realized as I looked at the structure of the society and its publications and its networks, um, how it was run on the same model as other natural science societies in the 19th century. Um, you know, this very, this, idea of, you know, a center of calculation with amateur observers collecting data um, and sending it to the center of calculation to be analyzed. Um, and that's very much the vision that James and his colleagues are promoting in their writing about psychical research. Um, James often compared it to the Weather Bureau. And so in a way, that's a metaphor in that you know, he wants people to think about their work as psychical observers, as, you know, analogous to the work of weather observers. But there are also kind of methodological implications in that comparison, in that um, the ASPR adopts the use of standardized forms and standardized automatic instruments um, with the kind of aspiration of managing people's personal equations, the differences between each observer uh, in the same way as uh, the Weather Bureau does. 
And of course, the Weather Bureau before it was um, before it was run by the U.S. government grew out of networks established by the Franklin Institute and the Smithsonian Institution starting in the 1830s. So they were really these models of successful amateur knowledge production Um, and also um, astronomy in this period as well uh, operated on a similar basis. And so it's really, you know, thinking about the mind and mental phenomena as a field science. And that's one of James's uh, you know, most persuasive arguments for psychical research and for this approach that um, all experiences, but especially, it seems, these very elusive liminal experiences uh, occur spontaneously in the world uh, and are very hard to reproduce in a laboratory setting. And so you have to have this army of observers ready to record phenomena as they occur. And the goal is to produce, you know, what the Weather Bureau, what for the Weather Bureau is a synoptic chart, this sort of God's eye view of how each of these discrete phenomena fit together uh, in what James calls the continental cyclone, uh, you know, these larger forces that are at work uh, that aren't visible to individuals on the ground. Yeah, it's it's really um, it's it's sort of neat, and it's it's interesting to think like of of this society as functioning more or less just or you know similarly to other um, practices that are still uh, you know other societies and and forms of branches of science that are still around today. Um, they are also so the psychical society is also really into studying dreams, and I thought. Th- that was interesting because this is sort of, this is pre-Freud, right? So um, tell us how and why um, psychical researchers studied dreams. I started to feel like dreams were kind of a gateway phenomenon uh, because, you know, almost everybody has dreams uh, and is intrigued by them and wants to understand what they tell us about how the mind works. And so they're a frequent topic in ASPR correspondence. Uh, and so they kind of, it, yeah, they invite this, this reflection. Uh, and so these uh, people who are reporting these experiences and ASPR officials often use unconscious, uh, subconscious, and subliminal kind of interchangeably. Um, and of course, they're using them in, the, in a pre-Freudian sense uh, that's shaped by the writing of Frederick William Henry Myers and Edmund Gurney, uh, Pierre Genet, uh, other... Uh, so, you know, there is a lot of thinking and writing about dreams and the unconscious, but it's kind of revolving around a different axis uh, than Freud's ideas about the unconscious. Uh, So they're not thinking about dream content as that which is repressed or censored by the conscious mind. They're thinking about it as this realm that's not accessible to consciousness, but is maybe associated with a sort of collective or intersubjective awareness, uh, or reflects some kind of connection with the divine. And so, and also because, uh, you know, dreams occur in people who are understood by their society to be mentally sound, that uh, makes them good evidence because the sort of the sanity of the reporter can't be called into question. Um, So to have sort of a prophetic dream, um, anticipating, you know, the death of a friend or a dream where you find a lost object uh, and then you wake up and go locate that object in the place where you dreamed about it. Um, these are seen as uh, very good evidence of, of either a sort of transcendent power of mind that goes beyond the boundaries of the skull um, or of of un you know heretofore unimagined 
powers of uh, observation and sort of unconscious storage of information and the sort of mechanical working of the mind. So there are, you know, there are both transpersonal and um, more mechanistic explanations of dreaming. And so after talking about sort of dreams and dream dream analysis, you move into a, a discussion of telepathy. So psychical researchers studying telepathy. And, um, and in, in order to do that, they come, they come up with methods that, very, that include drawing. Um, and I actually remember being given some kind of like psychological test as a child to see whether I was gifted or not. And I believe they wanted to see like how many circles I could fill up with um, different images or something like that. And um, I, so, I, and I thought this was so interesting, this chap, anyway, this chapter about using drawing as a way as a, to access thought or creativity or to show that people are communicating without words from mind to mind. So um, I think, anyway, could you tell us a little bit about how drawing was used to, to discover or test, um, you know, mental activity. Yeah. So one problem with, um, with psychical research as a field science or a branch of the natural sciences is that, um, things like dreams and clairvoyant visions are not um, are not very concrete evidence. They rely completely on recall and self-report. And so there's a sort of a, an interest in producing more direct readouts from the, from the mind. And so uh, there's, that these efforts to produce experimental data in controlled settings. And, you know, there, are, there were a lot of efforts to bring mediums into the laboratory uh, and to get them to make contact with the spirit world uh, under controlled observation. And that was very difficult. And uh, they often were not cooperative or didn't appreciate the rigors of uh, being subjected to these scientific methods. And so uh, rather than seeking experimental proof of spirit communication, one approach was to seek evidence for telepathy uh, between living subjects. And so this telepathy hypothesis uh, was one way of explaining mediumistic phenomena um, that perhaps, you know, perhaps telepathy is just a heretofore undiscovered uh, capacity of the human mind. And spiritualist mediums are simply performing telepathy uh, to get their information, either getting it from the minds of other living people um, or perhaps from the minds of dead people, but we don't even have to go that far to talk about telepathy. And so it was very appealing for that reason, um, that it provided potentially sort of a rational explanation without needing to negotiate uh, the metaphysical questions. And so uh, in pursuing evidence for telepathy, um, there's still a, a lot of opportunities for, you know, quote unquote, cheating uh, by stage mediums, by people who are doing psychic performances, uh, you know, on the public stage to make their living. Um, and, you know, these methods are sort of well known to performers, um, various kinds of signaling or using hidden codes. Uh to you know, perform these feats of mind reading, and so it's actually the British Society for Psychical Research that started using these drawing tests in the early 1880s, um, in the hope of uh, both having a sort of a more objective format that would be harder to cheat on, uh, because you know an abstract drawing of like shapes would be more difficult to communicate in code. Um, but also because it produces very striking visual evidence that can be reproduced in a publication. And it has this real rhetorical power to show the original image and then the image drawn by, by the percipient, who's the, 
the receiver of the telepathic message. And so um, in 1882, the British Society does a series of experiments with a medium named Albert Smith and his confederate, Douglas Blackburn, uh, who, who sends the telepathic messages. And, you know, they're very, very successful uh, in reproducing these images telepathically. And it's really held up as the gold standard of proof for telepathy uh, as having really made the case. And so the American society uh, was, many members of the American society were skeptical of these findings. And this kind of instigated an exploration of drawing and mental imagery by different different society leaders um, who engaged in their own efforts um, to both inventory all of the possible mental image, or I guess inventory the most common mental images um, and sort of kind of like the um, psychological test that you described taking um, to just ask people to draw whatever images come to their mind uh, and then like categorize uh, what are the most common images. And Maybe I was and given then, a psych. Maybe I was given a psychical test. I don't know. I think it was like the more images, the better in the one I was given. But anyway, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, there are still a lot of uses. Um, this idea that drawing kind of provides direct access to mental content uh, was also at the same time that it was used in psychical research being used in child study. And so that's probably the like that's the lineage of those tests in like child development context um, that G. Stanley Hall was um, soliciting drawings from children uh, in order to again create a sort of statistical picture of like what children are able to draw at what developmental stage and so there's yeah there's this confluence of drawing as uh, as an experimental and diagnostic tool. Uh, And across all of these contexts in child study and psychical research, and then also in neuropsychiatry, um, where it was used to study brain injuries, um, is always sort of considered uh, an automatic output that the content from the mind is just uh, actualized through the hand onto paper. And of course, in the case of psychical research, the that decisive uh, telepathy experiment was fraudulent, and um, Douglas Blackburn later, you know, wrote a very uh, sensational confession about how they had pulled off this trick. Uh, but at that point, it had already kind of become entrenched as a method uh, used by psychical researchers really ever since, um, I think in part because it's enjoyable for participants, um, because it really is fun. And one lineage of a lot of psychical experiments is it kind of in parlor games and in these mind reading activities that people did for amusement. And so there's almost a blurry line um, in a lot of cases between things that people were doing for entertainment and there and you know they would then sometimes become so intrigued with their results that they would write to the ASPR and say I think we've got something here like scattergory uh, like they're, they're like scattergories or something like that yeah yeah these games like everyone knew these games um and so but at the same time the um the popularity of these games was like a really useful screening process it's people who felt they were very good at these telepathic games might then come to regard themselves as having mediumistic powers. uh, And then they might write to the ASPR seeking validation. And, you know, that's where (laughs) this negotiation occurs between sort of citizen scientists or amateur scientists and the people who are appointed uh, as leaders of the society to kind of uh, impose rigor on them and people weren't uh, weren't always happy when their results were called into question um so yeah this assumption about drawing 
uh, was very interesting to me that this direct connection between mind and hand, um, which then extended into psychoanalysis um, because drawing was also uh, taken up as a tool for psychoanalysis um, with a similar kind of notion that the subliminal would express itself through the automatic actions of the hand. Uh, and, you know, it brings to mind the automatic recording devices um, used in psychological laboratories. Right. So, um, so I'm going to, I cannot think of a, I'm, I'm going to shift gears here. So we talked about, so one figure that sort of come, he come, that come, or two figures that come up towards the end of the book um, are Upton and Mary Sinclair. So unlike William James is kind of a through line through the whole book, but um, then towards the end, um, we get a really fascinating kind of um, story about how Upton and Mary Sinclair's psychical research relates to um, some of their political involvements um, and their written work. And I wonder if you could just give our listeners um, a little a little summary of of that and um, and tell us why how you know how you came to include Upton and Mary Sinclair. Their appearance was definitely unexpected because um, you know I think of Upton Sinclair as sort of this hard bitten uh, you know socialist muckraker uh, with an interest primarily in worldly things. Um, but this story was very extensively documented in the ASPR's correspondence. Um, you know, I think it's the longest one uh, among the longest sustained engagements um, between, you know, a participant and the society's leadership that I saw. Um, and Mary Craig Sinclair really stood out in her commitment to producing conclusive results from her research Um you know, in not being dissuaded by the kind of negative feedback from these authoritative scientists whose uh, approval and support she was seeking. Um, so Mary Craig Sinclair, uh, and she, you know, she really crafts her identity as a investigator throughout this correspondence. Uh, she saw herself as an outsider to science as someone who had been wrongly disbelieved by doctors and scientists in the course of her nervous illness, uh, but who had in fact mastered the tools of objective investigation. And it was those professionals who were irrationally biased against uh, psychical phenomena and who couldn't admit the reality of her experiences. Um, and so that's, an attitude that I think she, uh, or that sort of a investigator subjectivity that she has, that she had built over many years of engagement with, um, you know, both Upton Sinclair's political activism and their um, exploration of alternative medical sects. Um, so I think, I think that I, I might not be remembering this correctly, but I think they met at Battle Creek, uh, the sanitarium at Battle Creek. Um, and so together throughout their lives, they explored these um, alternative health movements, you know, vegetarianism. Uh, Mary Craig Sinclair got very into the mind cure. And so she fits this mold of psychical researchers who are skeptical of traditional authorities um, and eager to discover new dimensions of human experience, but very much uh, wanting to do that using scientific methods and still kind of seeking the approval of scientific authorities, even as they critique them. Um, so, yeah, it was really uh really riveting to see this kind of uh, to see her kind of develop as an investigator over the course of this correspondence. Um, you know, she kind of had a nervous breakdown in her forties and her turn to psychical research was connected um, with a spiritual crisis in her life that was precipitated by 
Upton Sinclair's long career of socialist agitation. And, you know, she kind of became frustrated and felt that it wasn't getting anywhere. So she takes this inward turn um, towards uh, engaging with powers of mind and uh, the hope of being able to transform other people's minds. And so, you know, a kind of alternative outlet to political activism, um, a, you know, a seeking of social equality and uh, universal sympathy through, uh, through other means. And so it really, um, you know, they, they moved to Long Beach, California, um, and Mary Craig Sinclair starts this long experimental relationship with a medium who called himself Count Astoja. And he, you know, they sort of became his patrons. He lived in their house for a period of time. Um, and so she does all of these uh, telepathic experiments with Astoja, but he ultimately isn't cooperative with her research goals. And so uh, she becomes a medium herself and produces, uh, using dr primarily drawing, uh, produces all of these telepathic drawings where she is the recipient um, and Upton is the sender of the images. And so she, and she persuaded Upton Sinclair. He was 100% um, on board. Uh, and, you know, their, their relationship was, it, you know, was very interesting. Um, she was very much involved in his writing. And so things that were published under his name were often, uh, you know, she had a lot of influence in producing those texts. Um, and ultimately the results of her research, uh, of her telepathic investigations were also published under Upton's name, um, in this book, mental radio. Uh, and so, he was, yeah, he was fully convinced that this was a newly discovered uh, capacity of the human mind that, uh, you know, progressive people would neglect at their peril uh, with sort of the power to transform the minds of the world. Um, and at the same time, you know, at the ASPR, uh, the leader at the time, Walter Franklin Prince, had kind of been skeptical of Mary Craig Sinclair um, and really kept her at arm's length. And it wasn't until this book was published under Upton's name um, that he became very enthusiastic about their results uh, and wrote very favorably about it. Um, but, it, you know, it's really notable the way that she was framed as a female experimenter and subject um, that Prince, is, uh, Prince very explicitly kind of puts her in her place as being... Uh, a nervous, uh, a nervous woman, um, and it's really Upton whose word he's relying on as currency. Right. So, th because there's a lot more, um, you know, um, skepticism or doubt about is Mary Sinclair having the are these actual experiences that she's having, or is she just crazy? And that's kind of um, this is the note that the book ends on. And toward the end, you joke, you, you kind of make it, I think it's in one of the, the inner, one of the, the autobiographical interludes that spending so many years, um, you say, pouring over the testimony of people who saw and heard impossible things would make you crazy. Um, I guess, um, did it make you crazy? And then how does psychical research ultimately relate to the emergence of psi sciences that are more focused on, say, on abnormal mental states? <laughs> well, um, I do love hearing everyone's ghost stories and stories of the supernormal, uh, which whenever, you know, I introduce myself and explain while I was working on this book, you know, whenever I met someone and explained what I was doing, they would immediately tell me uh, everything weird that had happened to them. And I, that's fantastic. Um, and I, I've become much more attentive to those dimensions of experience and what they mean to individuals uh, and how they kind of create this very elusive sense of intersubjective connection in a world where 
you know, I certainly, and I think many other people were brought up in this sort of rational, skeptical scientific framework. Uh, and ultimately, what is or isn't crazy depends on what fi- on what you find frightening or destabilizing um, to your own worldview. So I, I felt I feel like it was very beneficial to me to spend so much time immersed in this material. Um, Nothing surprises you now. You could <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> uh, and it, it's really and there's sort of like a tragedy element to um, to the story of the ASPR in that period. Um because psychical research was really out of step with the direction that the mind sciences were going in um, towards the laboratory, towards experimental methods. And so it became kind of a hot potato in these boundary disputes. Um, and the there was a very concerted demarcation project of getting the weird stuff out um, and claiming uh, the mantle of science for psychology and, you know, the kind of uh, some of the big actors in that are, you know, Hugo Munsterberg at Harvard and Joseph Jastrow, um, who's writing, you know, who is doing a lot of public work, uh, you know, representing psychology to the public and arguing that, you know, this, this psychical stuff, is not something that can be taken seriously as an object of scientific investigation. Rather, it is a symptom. Um, it is a symptom of irrationality and perhaps even of mental disorder. And so psychology has to engage it, it through, the, through that lens. Um, and, you know, Andreas Sommer has been really, uh, you know, really shaped my thinking about that move. Um, you know, he describes this trans- transformation of belief into a mental pathology. And so that, um, that kind of served to put a, you know, to really limit the traction that someone like James could get um, for this society and for considering these questions in the context of psychology. Um, and, you know, it's not that, and it's like Jastrow's argument isn't extremely novel in the context of psychical research. Participants are very aware um, that there's a danger of their experiences being interpreted as pathological. And they had a well-established system for negotiating this question um, of sanity versus insanity, uh, you know, health versus a diseased state. Um, and, you know, they accepted that. I mean, that's what was, uh, you know, really interesting about the language that they use. Like they accepted that, in fact, everyone <laughs> is slightly disordered. Um, and we're never going to, you know, if we're honest, no one is a perfect observer. And so all we can do is be transparent about the conditions uh, under which these phenomena occur and about our status as observers. Um, And so it's kind of a, and so they they sort of had this way of talking and uh, talking about and framing um, mental health or illness that is completely steamrolled by, you know, the, the sort of, unilateral declaration <laughs> that any belief in the supernatural is clearly uh, a reflection of, uh, of of primitive pathology. Um, and so that's not to say that, you know, they didn't, they didn't keep fighting uh, or these ideas didn't persist. And so I think my, you know, my book concludes at that moment when psychical research was transformed into parapsychology in the hands of J.B. Ryan, um, who established the Duke Parapsychology Laboratory, uh, really in the hope of making it 
um, and experimental science. And so he starts experimenting um, with ESP cards and starts this these lines of investigation that are still open today in the parapsychology community. But that's but but that's the end of psychical research um, in the way that it emerged and this sort of um, chaotic moment in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I, I think now probably when most people think of psychical research, they think of shows on t- like ghost hunting shows or something like that. I don't know. Or yeah, you know, yeah. fortune tellers that you call, like get their number from late night TV or find on the internet. I don't know. Yeah, um, the decades since have been, um, there's a lot of just sort of omnivorous sampling from all of these different traditions of psychical research and occultism and spiritualism. Um, and, you know, I should add, and this is one of my concerns about the book, that the Society for Psychical Research, both in the U.S. and in the U.K., um, is still very much alive in the sense that, um, you know, I think the U.K. society is even more, is very active um, in, you know, hosting talks and conferences and publications. And so um, it's, and I think that's, it, it raises the question of, like, what falls into the sphere of science um, versus pseudoscience or counter science or parascience um, because they, they have persisted and continued to, you know, attract a community of people who are really committed to investigating phenomena in their way. Um, and who still, who continue to have this relationship with um, more institutional science. That is one of, uh, that's kind of a love hate relationship. Yeah. And, and that, that's, sort of where things stand today. And that is interesting that this, that the organizations are still sort of alive and, and well, although the context that they operate in has obviously changed quite a bit. Um, Alicia, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I wondered if you could tell us what you're working on next. Yeah. um, I am working on another book um, that's kind of, it, it, was formed out of the various avenues that I explored um, for common phantoms and didn't quite fit into the book and kind of led me in this, uh, in this direction towards thinking about um, the history of our sort of spiritual relationship to the landscape and uh, our spiritual investment in resources extracted from the landscape. Um, so this book is really an examination of resource extraction and power as part of the spiritual history of the United States. Wow, that sounds like a fascinating project and very and and quite timely as well. Um, Alicia, thank you so much for for coming on the show today and and sharing your work on on common phantoms with us. <laughs>